so grateful uh, that you can share it with us here at the Brook, and um, especially tonight, this Good Friday. What a what a beautiful night! What a, a remarkable night it is. So get ready to dive into God's Word with you all. Um, this week, I saw on Instagram a story of a child, a little kid who had gotten into the family Vaseline and decided to do her own hair. And it reminded me of the time when my daughter got into my wife's makeup and decided to do her own makeup. And you may remember similar stories like that. And when you notice they had done what's wrong, they got that look on their face. The same look that Erica and I had freshman year when we decided to cut class and go out to lunch at McDonald's at Lane Tech. You see, at Lane Tech, uh, when you're a freshman, you did not have open campus. And uh, by the way, my parents might be hearing this for the first time. Mom and Dad, I'm sorry. But freshman year, you didn't have open campus, so we had lunch together. That's one of the ways we connected as freshmen. And then uh, we decided, hey, let's go off campus for lunch because that was like a cool thing to do. And so, like, what better place to go than McDonald's? And so there we were with all other, what, three, four dozen Lane students at McDonald's eating our lunch, thinking we're super cool because we stepped off campus. We thought we were super cool until the Lane Tech security stepped into McDonald's. My first thought was like, look, there's dozens of us. There's no way they know that we're freshmen. Except when Erica started to panic. She stood up and started doing this. I'm like, what are you doing? Get down. Like, like you're, just, you're, you're revealing us. They looked our way, and it was the same face as the kid who gets in the makeup. Guilt. You got us caught us red-handed, and sure enough, they brought us back on campus and uh, essentially swore that we would never do it again or else they would call our parents, hence why our parents probably don't know about it until today. <laughs> it's that look of guilt, right? And so if you're in high school today, I'm not commending to you cutting class or stepping off campus when you shouldn't. But for all of us, I am submitting that feeling of guilt. That recognition when you know you've done what's wrong. The truth of the matter is we've all had that feeling and we've all had that look. And whether your, quote, crime was as significant as ours was cutting class or something altogether different, look, guilt is in us. It's upon us because we are all ultimately lawbreakers. We've all done wrong. Guilt, according to one definition, is the responsibility of a person for an offense or a wrongdoing. That's what guilt is. It's the responsibility of having done what's wrong. And when the Bible talks about guilt, it says there is a consequence attached to that wrongdoing. Now, consequences can look a variety of ways, but ultimately when we have done what is wrong, there is a consequence attached to that that we ourselves can't get ourselves out of. The Bible says that the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And that seems like a really dramatic statement, but it is what the Bible teaches because there is a God who is holy and perfect, and we as people are the very opposite of that. And it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, you and I were born with a sin nature. And we act out of that sinful nature and we do things that are sinful. We do things that are wrong. We are caught before God and we have guilt. 
You see, our guilt is the backdrop of Good Friday. That and God's glory are what ultimately bring Good Friday to a head. And as we've been talking the last several, several Sundays, talking about Jesus' walk toward Jerusalem, last Sunday his entrance into the city, which appeared to be very weak but was quite triumphant, Jesus now is in Jerusalem and everything climaxes at the cross. And tonight, I want to present to you a real simple statement as to why Jesus had to die on that cross. Simply put, Jesus died so you could live. Now, I'm going to keep it that plain and that simple because I want us to understand it clearly. I want you to take it personal. Jesus died so that you could live. Yes, it's true that Jesus died so that people could live, that the person next to you could live, that your family member could live. But tonight I want you to take it personal. Jesus died so that you could live. I want you to hear that God has custom made a way to fit the needs of your soul to remove that guilt. Today we are talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And I want to give us a timeline here. It was on Sunday before his crucifixion that he walked into Jerusalem, actually rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as a king. He would go into Jerusalem and have quite a busy week. He'd go into the temple, make some more enemies as if he didn't need any more. He would overturn tables, upset that they turned God's house into a place of robbery. He would go about the city doing miracles, teaching. And then the Thursday before he was arrested, the night before, he'd meet up in a room in Jerusalem known as the upper room. And there he would wash his disciples' feet. And he'd tell them, hey, in the same way, I want you to serve other people. He would teach them that night, telling them, hey, I'm going to be going soon. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus sits down with them, and they get to share a meal. And he pulls out the cup, and he pulls out the bread. And before they celebrate this meal, he's like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're looking around like, who, who's going to do that? God, is it me? Jesus, I mean, Jesus, is it me? Who, who, who's going to do it? Jesus gives Judas the thumbs up, like, hey, you can go now. Judas goes out, gets a band of soldiers. Meanwhile, Jesus celebrates, after Jesus celebrates the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus goes out with his disciples into the field and starts talking to them, teaching them. And then he takes Peter, James, and John and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and starts to pray because Jesus knows the shoe is about to drop. He's in the garden praying and praying as Erica shared with us. His sweat was as blood because Jesus knew the countdown was about to reach zero. There in the garden, suddenly at a distance, they saw torches. And there Judas shows up, kisses Jesus on the cheek as the signal for which the soldiers were to arrest him. And arrest him they did. And they would lead Jesus into an illegal trial at night. Which ultimately would lead to our passage today. Which is Luke chapter 23. 
I'm going to invite you to meet me in Luke 23, verse 32. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did God allow this? Luke 23 gives us an answer to that question. Family, I want to invite you to stand with me as I get ready to read from God's word here. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43 is what I'm going to read. There is a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and we really sincerely invite you to take that Bible if you don't own one and to take that as your own personal Bible. It's our gift to you. We want you to have this in your hands. The Gospel of Luke is towards the end of the Bible in the New Testament. And here's what Luke writes. Luke was a historian, a theologian, a doctor, and he wanted people to know the truth. And this is what he writes in Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Can you say save yourself? There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. You may be seated, family. We're told in verse 32 that Jesus and two criminals were led away to be put to death. Now there's a whole lot that takes place to get to the point where Jesus is about to be put to death. Jesus received the death penalty, family. Something he was not deserving of. And in fact, something that the rulers had already determined that he was not deserving of. In fact, even the pagan ruler Pilate and Herod interviewed Jesus, interrogated him, and determined he had done nothing wrong deserving of death. But the amount of law-breaking and law-bending the religious leaders had to do to get to this point is astounding. But they were 
set on making sure they would silence Jesus because they hated him. They hated the fact that he called out their evil. They hated the fact that people were going to him. They hated the fact that he was actually teaching with authority and doing miraculous signs. They ultimately just hated Jesus and they wanted to silence him. They wanted to silence his followers. And the only way they could do so, according to their estimation, was to get him the death penalty. And that's what they called for. And eventually that's what they got. Two criminals along with Jesus. It says that they, in verse 33, were, called, were, were sent to a place called the Skull. It's called the skull. In Latin, it's called Calvary. In Hebrew, it's called Golgotha. It's the place where Jesus would be crucified. Now, they don't know why it's called place of the skull. Some people think that in the rock formation, it appeared to be a skull. Some people think that there were plenty of skulls on the place because of so many executions. And other people simply thought, it was a place where many executions took place. Whatever the case was, Jesus and these criminals would be taken to Calvary, to Golgotha, to the skull. And it says here that they crucified him there along with the criminals. Now, family, it seems like Luke, along with Matthew and Mark and John, are a bit discreet when they talk about this. But, family, we have to understand What's being said when it says that he was crucified there? You see, crucifixion was a Roman device. It was a Roman thing done to execute criminals. It was a process. It began with scourging them with a flagellum, which was a leather whip with leather cords and pieces of metal and bone attached to the ends of those cords. And they would whip the criminals, and those pieces would get into their sides, pulled out, and their flesh would tear apart. They'd whip them so bad that they would begin to bleed profusely. They wanted to make an example of these criminals so that anyone watching would know, I better not do what they did. But it didn't end there for Jesus. Mark tells us that the guards proceeded to put a purple cloak on Jesus which was a garment of royalty. He said, you're, you said, you're a king? So they put a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. It says in Mark chapter 15, verse 18, that they began to salute him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And they stripped him of his cloak and let him out to be crucified. When criminals were let out, they would be carrying their own crossbeam. They would carry that crossbeam to the site of execution. Again, as a way of telling others, you better not do what they did. In fact, to make clear what their crime was, they would have these criminals wear around their neck a sign saying what they had done wrong, the crime they had committed. And of course, when they went to the site of execution, they would nail that crime to their cross. Their hands would be tied or nailed to a cross. And in Jesus' case, we're told nailed. It wouldn't have been nailed through his palm because his hand wouldn't have, his flesh wouldn't have the strength to hold up his body. 
Those who were crucified were nailed through their wrists so their bones could hold them up. They were nailed in their hands and then put on the other post, and then their feet were nailed in the same way with the seven-inch nail. There would be a little seat there for them as they would sit to catch a breath. Some people speculate, how did people who were crucified actually die? On the one hand, some just bled to death. Others died of asphyxiation from suffocating, from holding up and being unable to breathe. They would hang on their cross for however long it took for them to die. With such length, naturally the birds of the air would come and start feasting on the corpse. And even at this description, we have to ask, why would God allow this? Why did Jesus choose to die? Crucifixion was such a horrible thing that the philosopher Cicero said that you should not even mention the word in his hearing. Another person says, hanging is a lesser penalty than the cross, for the gallows kill victims immediately, whereas the cross tortures for a long time. The philosopher Seneca said this, who lived when Jesus lived. He said, I see crosses there, not just one kind, but many, made in different ways. Some have their victims with head down to the ground, and some impale their victims, and others stretch out their arms on the gibbet. Crucifixion became a source of popular entertainment to satisfy the lust and revenge and the fear the, enemy, or the, or the soldiers wanted to inflict. In fact, one Roman philosopher named Quintilian said this around the year 100 AD. He says, when we Romans crucify criminals, the most frequented roads are chosen where the greatest number of people can look and be seized by fear. Those who were crucified were made into a spectacle. This is hardly what we would have our hero die upon. In fact, a great adversary, opponent, and hostile enemy of Christianity named Celsus, who died in the second century, he says this. He says, what drunken woman telling stories to lull a small child to sleep would not be ashamed of muttering such, such prosperity? preposterous things, saying the belief of Christians that their king was crucified is so ridiculous, not even a drunken woman would tell that story to a child to put him to sleep. This is how radical and scandalous a cross would be. And so when Luke writes that they crucified him there, understand what that means. And that's what they did. And we're told in verse 34, though, that Jesus' impulse was to say this. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That Jesus in that moment would offer forgiveness. That Jesus in that moment would offer forgiveness to everybody responsible. The Romans who nailed him. The Jews who arrested him, Judas who betrayed him, his disciples who forsook him, Pilate who gave him over, Herod who laughed at him, and you who put him on that cross. We sang, were you there when they crucified the Lord? And family, the answer is yes. 
We were there. Because it was our sin that put him to that cross. As if this wasn't enough, it says they began to divide up his garments. People stood watching by the road as was the goal of crucifixion. But then it says three different groups of people began to mock him. The first of which is the rulers, the religious leaders, we're told in verse 35. It says this. It says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen one. In their mind, they're thinking, if Jesus is the deliverer, the one that he claims to be, surely this could not be his end, his fate. So if you have the capability to save others, which they knew he did, he had risen Lazarus from the dead, Jairus' daughter from the dead, and so many others. If he could do that, Jesus, surely you can get yourself off the cross. They mocked him. Misunderstanding his identity and his purpose. But they weren't the only ones. In fact, we're told in verse 36 that the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, which is kind of a poor man's drink, undoubtedly to mock him as the king. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, again, save yourself. And there was also the inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. The rulers mocked him. The soldiers mocked him. And then even one of the criminals crucified next to him mocks him. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Notice all three groups say essentially the same thing. They questioned Jesus' identity, who he claimed to be, the king, who has a kingdom, the ruler, the one who would rescue his people. They questioned that. And they questioned Jesus' inability to save himself and other people. And for them, they couldn't make sense of it. And so they made fun of him. While the grand irony exists here in the text because the opposite of what they say is true. Family, hear this. It is because he was the Christ that he would not save himself in order to save others. You you, you can't save yourself. You, You can't save others. But it was by not saving himself that he would indeed save others, family. You see, his death would be the pathway to peace with God. His death would be the road to reconciliation with God. His death would be the corridor to forgiveness. Jesus died so you could live, family. And so he took the mockery. He took the scourging. He took the crucifixion. He took all of it so you wouldn't have to. Jesus died so that you could live. And as the criminal mocked him, there was another criminal. Now, I had the passage from Matthew read from us earlier when our sister Marlene read it. If you noticed, the last verse she read, it says, the robbers, the criminals, also mocked. Robbers, plural. The robber to the right and the robber to the left, both mocked Jesus. But at some point, while Jesus was on the cross, one of the criminals had a change of heart. At some point on the cross, he is observing and he's watching and he's remembering what Jesus has said. And he's saying, he's innocent. 
In fact, he says in verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him, saying, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Guys, I want you all to understand the remarkable statement this man on the cross is making here. He is saying essentially that they both, these two criminals, deserve what they're getting, but that Jesus doesn't. Family, they understood, he understood God's justice. We must understand God's justice. We have to understand. And this is not a popular thing to say in our day and age. But humanity is not basically good. You're not basically good. It's it's in your core. Sin is in your core. It's what influences every prideful thought you get. It's what moves every lustful urge. It's what pursues every jealous longing. It's what makes us bitter and hateful and envious and gossiping and self-righteous and judgmental. And ultimately, we need help. And this man's like, man, I need help. I deserve the judgment I'm getting. And family, here at the brook, we have to understand that we are people who deserve death. Whether that's popular to say or not, not on my watch will we not understand that here at this church. We deserve to die. Make it personal. You deserve death. And the thief on the cross understood that. And in that understanding, though, became a pathway for him to understand the other side of that coin. Because he goes on to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, he understands Not only that he is guilty and deserving of death, but he also understands that Jesus is innocent and deserving of being freed. He understands that Jesus is not guilty. He understands that Jesus has not sinned. And in fact, he understands something far more important than you and I understand oftentimes. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into, notice the pronoun family. I'm going to make you see it. Look in the text. Look in the text there in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you enter into whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? What is this man saying? He's saying, Jesus, you've got a kingdom. And remember me when you get to your kingdom. This man understands that Jesus' kingdom is not literal and physical, but spiritual in this moment. How do I know he, he understands that? Because the king is being crucified right next to him. See, this man understands his own guilt. He understands Jesus' innocence. And he understands that Jesus is there because he's a king with a kingdom. And if Jesus is a king with a kingdom, Jesus has a kingdom with citizens. Jesus has a kingdom with his righteousness. Jesus has a kingdom that, that governs, governed by the way he runs things. And with that kingdom, one day Jesus will come back and reign on earth as king. And this man is saying, Jesus, remember me when this happens. Remember me when you get to your kingdom. 
This is remarkable, family. How does the thief understand this? I can speculate that he was around the block when Jesus was teaching. Maybe he had a disciple of Jesus in his ear. Or maybe he was listening closely as Jesus was being mocked. Whatever the case was, this man has just laid out for us the pathway to salvation through Jesus. It begins with recognizing our sin, and it continues with recognizing Jesus as the answer for that sin problem. But this man is there, unable to do anything else but believe. He couldn't lift his hands to praise Jesus because they were tied down to a cross. He couldn't move his feet because they were stuck in place. He couldn't give of his money because he's there naked. He couldn't work hard to earn salvation because there was nowhere for him to go. All he could do, all he could do and all he needed to do was Believe, family. Through faith and repentance, that's how we are forgiven. Now you might say, hey, P.E., how do you know this man was forgiven? I mean, how do you know this guy truly believed? Well, I know without a shadow of a doubt because what Jesus tells him. Jesus tells this man who could do nothing to earn his salvation. Jesus tells this man he could do nothing to earn eternal life. Jesus tells this man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you may be here today and you've tried different ways to get yourself right with God. I need you to understand what this thief understood. Was that there was nothing he could do to get right with God but believe. It's not that you need to pray more to get saved. It's not that you got to come into this building more to get saved. It's not that you got to give more money or be a better person. In fact, the harder you try, the more you realize you really stink at that. You need a Savior. You need one who would step into your place. You need somebody who could do what you cannot do. This thief became a theologian. He became a believer. He became a Christian and did nothing to earn it. And Jesus solidifies that fact by telling him, truly, I'm telling you, with my word and my authority, I'm telling you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. Now let me unpack this statement Jesus makes. Jesus says today. Because Jesus knows they're both about to die today. It's not you die today and then tomorrow you enter paradise. It's not that, not, not that you die today and then your soul sleeps for a period of time and then you get to get to paradise. It's not that you die today, go to purgatory, you got to earn your way back out of purgatory. But you die today and in faith through Jesus, you are with him today. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, you will. Not you might. Not like, you know what, let me double check when I get to glory and I'll come back and let you know. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because our salvation is secured not based on anything we can do, but what Jesus is doing on that cross in that moment. His faith is sealed, and that man couldn't lift a hand to do it. Family, you could lose your keys. You could lose your phone. 
You can lose your mind, but you can't lose your salvation. Why? Because you could do nothing to earn it. This man of all people was quite literally crucified with Christ. And at that moment, he was spiritually crucified with Christ. And Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And when I'm crucified with Christ, I can't get uncrucified with Christ. When I'm died to my old way and live to my new way, my new way can't die because it's already alive. Today, you will, you will, thirdly, be with me. Not that you're going to be in some far off land where I'm not around. In fact, what is eternal life if it's not with Jesus? Today, you'll be with me. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we're told at the moment of death in Christ, we are ushered into the very presence of God. That's hope, family. And Jesus says it without a shadow of a doubt. Today you will be with me. But where? In paradise. This word paradise is used three times in the Bible, in the New Testament. And all three times it is a reference to eternal life. You know, in our day and age, people long for utopias. And our longings really don't get met, so we've resolved to like kind of dystopian realities. In fact, in movies, that really captures our imagination. These worlds where things are so bad and chaotic. The truth of the matter is, what kind of movie can really capture paradise? It's not Narnia. It's not Rivendell. It ain't Wakanda. It's not Pandora of Avatar. You see, even in the human imagination, we cannot conjure up what Jesus is here offering to this man. Jesus says, it's paradise. Well, what is it? Well, in Revelation 21, this is what John writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That's paradise when God dwells with his people. You see, we can picture gold streets. We can picture glorious crystals. We can picture beautiful sights. But we can't quite picture the presence of God unhindered by sin. But oh, how paradise that will be, family. And in that place, Revelation says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. For the former things have passed away. That's what Jesus' death has accomplished. You see, the way of the man on the left led to condemnation justly deserved. The way of the man on the right led to condemnation justly deserved. But it was the way of the man in the middle that became the way, the truth, and the life. God made him who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Which is to say that in that point of faith in Jesus' death, our sin is placed upon his shoulders. And his righteousness is declared to us. Luke continues on. 
It was about the sixth hour, noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Why did God allow this? Why did Jesus choose to die? It's because he was the Christ. And he would not save himself in order to save others. And tonight, family, understand this in the plainest of terms. Jesus died so that you could live. That's the life and invitation we have for you tonight, this Friday, that we can call good. And that's eternal life that's offered to you. When our prayer team comes up here as we close in song tonight, if you've never believed in Jesus' death for you and his resurrection for you, that he took your sin to give you forgiveness and eternal life, let tonight be that night. Tonight, April 15th, be the night that you crossed over from death to life. That's what Good Friday is all about. Let's pray together. What a mighty God we serve. Oh, precious God, you held nothing back in order to rescue us. And as we stand guilty, guilty, God, even still you came to rescue us. When we couldn't even lift a hand toward you, when we couldn't even take a step toward you, when we could offer nothing to you, you came to us. And so tonight, God, I pray that you would cause our faith to rise. Remind us of forgiveness, God. Allow us to put our guilt and shame where it ought to be, and that's at the cross of Jesus so we can experience your forgiveness, your life, your healing. Peace with God. We worship you, God, tonight. We give you praise, Jesus. We just say thank you for doing what we could not do. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's rise to our feet, family. Brooke family, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday, family. But Sunday is coming. Death won't get the final word. It won't get the final word. As you go out tonight, as you think about tomorrow, it's Friday, day one. Tomorrow, Saturday, day two. And early Sunday morning, 
there's a different story. Family, I want to invite you to worship with us Sunday at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We have two worship services. Don't come at 10. You'll be late for one and early for the other, family. All right? We need you all to spread the word, to share that on social media. Look, our goal is not to get a full church, to get a full church. Our goal is for people to hear that there is a God who went to the cross and went to the grave and defeated the grave for them to have eternal life. And so get that word out, family. It's on us to be God's spokesman. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be our glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. 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 You are dismissed. We'll see you all Sunday morning, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m.